And my plan was to go out to the state park in the morning and hide my engagement ring in a jack in the pulpit that would happen to be flowering at the time. I would then go out, I would get down on one knee to look at this beautiful flower. I would show Jen this flower. I would open it up and bam, there would be the ring inside the jack in the pulpit plant. That was my idea. Um, that turned out not to be quite how it unfolded. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today, before we get into the interview, I want to talk a little bit about marketing. And uh, so over the past few episodes, I've been talking about my experience in starting this podcast and the things that I'm trying to improve on and sort of uh, what the ways that I've thought about what I'm doing uh, in hopes that it might be useful for other people in thinking about their own kind of creative endeavors they want, they want to have. And uh, so I think that um, marketing is something that is often looked down upon by academics because it's this sense that you uh, are basically having to trick people into engaging with w what you are creating, which uh, I think what, what most people uh, from an academic background would, would hope, the way they think that ought to be, is that you create something that is high quality, and by virtue of the merit of having created something high quality, people will engage with it uh, because it is worthwhile and genuinely useful and insightful. And um, certainly there is no doubt that that should be the utmost uh, of your priorities, right? Is that there's no doubt that um, creating something that is high quality and uh, making something that is worth engaging with, there is no way around that, right? And that has to be your, your first priority. However, there is this second layer uh, in which uh, just by virtue of having created something of quality, that is not a guarantee that people will engage with it on the level that you might like or the level of its potential. And um, this is where marketing comes in. Uh, and the idea is that um, uh, there is so much information out there and there, there are so many different things for people to engage with. Um, the way in which they select what information they are going to consume and what ideas they are going to engage with is non-trivial. And so the way that I think about it is that um, the, the question is, what does it mean for someone to be a fan of your work in the sense of consistently engaging with the things that you're creating? And the answer to that uh, for, I think, most people is that it looks something like this on and off yes or no uh, sort of flipping of a switch, right? Is that one day someone doesn't know about you or what you're doing, uh, and then they see your work and instantly fall for it, and um, uh, then the, the flip switch, the, the, the switch flips, and they become a fan of your work, and they engage with it consistently. Uh, however, the way that I think about it is that it's a much more gradual process. The mental model that I use is that it's a process of chipping away, right? And so when I think about the people that I have come to really appreciate their work, sure, there are a couple of them where I read one piece by them and immediately became enamored of what they were doing and, and just had to consume all of it. However, the much more common scenario is that, um, you know, it'll look something like, okay, I see someone's name around a bunch and I'm kind of skeptical of it because it's like, well, I don't really know what they're about. It doesn't really seem like my kind of thing. Uh, and I, you know, I've already got plenty of stuff to, to look at. So why incorporate this new thing? Uh, but then, you know, someone shares an article that looks quite interesting and you read that and you say like, okay, well, yeah, no, that's uh, no, that, that, that for sure, you know, resonates with me. And then you kind of, you know, go back to, to not worrying about uh, that person too much. But then, you know, you, you see that they've talked to, you know, interesting people on their podcast, for example. And there's this sort of slippery slope process of starting off skeptical and at a distance and then getting increasingly closer um, to 
really building this sense of trust, right? Because that is what is it is about, right? If you are uh, creating something, you want the people who are engaging with that to trust that whatever you have created is going to be of value to them. And, you know, uh, in some cases, it might be that that value is immediately obvious to them, right? If it is a topic that they already care about and you are doing that topic justice and they'll care about it. But then, then that trust also suggests that even if they don't immediately care about that topic, they trust you enough to say something interesting and insightful and worthwhile about that in a way that might change their mind there. And that state is a really powerful place to be. And so that is, in a sense, what I am trying to cultivate with this podcast and the way that I envision the marketing of it, right? And so ultimately, I would really like to have it be this much larger thing where I talk to many different kinds of, of people about many different aspects of their personal processes. But for the sort of initial period, I have been very specific about having a well-defined target market of um, uh, essentially psychology graduate students, people who are more or less in a similar place as myself, who are developing this skill set and uh, are looking for ways to set themselves up to apply it in, in, in you know, a trajectory that's going to be rewarding and engaging for them over the course of their career. And um, so uh, initially when I produce uh, an, an episode, um, uh, the, well, so the idea is that um, by talking to these high-level people in the field of psychology, uh, when they uh, share that, oh, I, I talked to Cody for an hour and it was quite interesting and we, we got a lot into it and, um, you know, I, I enjoyed it. When people are going to see, see that on their Twitter feed or an email newsletter or whatever it is, the first time they see it, they're not going to care that much, right? They, may, they might be like, oh, that's interesting, but they're not going to know who I am. And, you know, they're not going to sort of take this generalization from it that, oh, well, you know, Cody's going to do all this stuff that I'm going to enjoy in the future. Um, but then the second time they see it and, uh, uh, you know, there's someone else that they're keen on understanding and, uh, you know, getting insights from, they'll be like, okay. Yeah. And then over time, after they see, you know, five, six people that they really uh, think are interesting host on there, that's when that um, sense of trust is going to be developed, right? That I am going to uh, hopefully be create, consistently creating this uh, informative content that appeals to a certain kind of person with a certain background and they know that when I put something out there there's a good chance that it's going to be of interest to them um, and then from that after establishing that sort of base uh, group of people who uh, are interested in that then that gives me an opportunity to build out into um, you know increasingly uh, diverse kinds of content and uh, and audiences but that has sort of been the way that I have hoped to set up the, the, the uh, you know, what I think is reasonable to think of as, as marketing for this podcast and, and, and what that looks like. And um, I think it's an important thing to think about. Of course, uh, secondary to creating something that is uh, intrinsically high quality and valuable. Um, but uh, I think it's also important to think about who is going to engage and how are you going to get that to them. So thank you for uh, indulging me in hearing a little bit about that. I hope that there was something of interest to you there. Um, if, if you do find anything of interest on the podcast, you know, I appreciate the, the follows and the subscriptions and, and all that sort of stuff that people generally say on their podcast. Um, uh, but what I would really appreciate is if you have been enjoying this show or do enjoy this interview or, or other things or anything that I've been saying on here, I would love to know about it directly. Shoot me a tweet or an email or anything like that uh, because at the end of the day, uh, one of the biggest reasons why I want to do this is because I would love to play a minor role in helping other people make sense of their world and, and figure out you know, how best to contribute to it. And that's what I hope this podcast will will do is, um, you know, sort of be one of those uh, small, small, minor contributions on someone else's uh, road. And, you know, if, if you feel like that, that um, 
is true for you. I would love I'd love to hear about it from you. Anyway, let's get into the uh, interview now. I'm really excited about this guest. He is the author of a book called Mindwise, uh, which is quite common in intro to psych classes and social psychology classes. He's written for uh, a lot of venues such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Wired, uh, NPR, etc. And um, he is the John Templeton Keller Professor of Behavioral Science uh, at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Uh, so I'm very excited to introduce to you Nick Epley. All right, so uh, Nick, it's really great to have you on today because I am a big admirer of your work. You have uh, a few papers that have really changed the game when it comes to our understanding of how we make sense of other people, specifically with insights into how we leverage our understanding of ourselves to uh, interpret their behavior and you know often with uh, mixed results and uh, you also have your book Mindwise uh, which I'm a fan of and it's you know read widely in a lot of psych courses it's uh, it contains one of my favorite insights ever about how we understand other people which is the difference between perspective getting and perspective taking uh, perspective taking being putting ourselves in other person's shoes and perspective taking being the simple idea that if we really want to know what someone else feels, the best way to get at that is just to ask them. And you know, so the, these I think are brilliant, uh, concise insights of yours that have illuminated just large swathes of, of human cognition. So uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for asking me to do it. I think this is neat what you're doing here. So thanks for asking me to be on. Uh, Awesome. So uh, I want to start by just uh, to have a sense of where you are now and compare that to, to where you've been. What does your average day sort of look like? Well, um, I'm on leave right now, which um, is sort of like a sabbatical, except that we don't have sabbaticals at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago, where I'm at. I do get out of some committee works that I'm normally on, um, but I still am doing my regular teaching. I'm on a few other committees. I'm running a center. Um, but what that means is that I do have a little more flexibility now with how I use my time. And I'm actually spending a fair bit of time now thinking about a second book. So my typical day involves getting up. I'll, I'll work from home more often than I, than I typically do, but either I'll come to my office here at the house where I am now or I'll go into the uh, psych department at the University of Chicago where I'm sitting on leave. I'll try in the morning to spend time reading or writing because that's really the most productive time of the day for me and, and when I've got the most energy. And then I try to schedule meetings if I have them in the afternoon, ideally as late as possible. And then I'm usually home uh, on a train that, that gets me home by six o'clock so I can be here for dinner. I've got five kids, four of whom are, are still at home. And so it's important for me to be home home at dinner. And and so so I am. The train, uh, I understand from your writing, is where you do your main observation of other people, huh? <laughs> yes, we, we have done some experiments that I think are memorable on the trains here in Chicago. We also just replicated those experiments in London. Um, this summer as well. And yeah, I think, I think one, one really important thing I learned from my advisor, Tom Gilovich at Cornell, who's just a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal advisor, was he just made it very clear to me always that we should be trying to understand phenomena out there. And he would always point outside his window, outside of his office, out there as opposed to in here. And in here, he would point to the journal sitting on his shelves, the notion being that psychology is really the scientific study of everyday life and observations from everyday life are the things we're trying to explain and understand. So when I notice highly social people who are made happier and healthier by engaging with other people who have brains uniquely equipped to connect to the minds of others, getting on the train every morning and almost never doing it, that is almost never engaging with other people, that's the kind of phenomena I think we ought to be trying to explain. And so, yes, I use, use a lot of my everyday experience 
as a as a starting point in in our research. So, did when you were starting out, did you also uh, so 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 when Tom was pointing outside of his window, was that something that you were already sympathetic to, or was that something you had to get on board and, and incorporate more to your life as as you were um, you know working through your career? Um. That's a good question. I, uh, the very first bits of research that I did were not of this sort of looking out the world and trying to explain a puzzling phenomena. They were much more grounded in existing research, um, moving beyond some other existing findings that we knew of, addressing the next question in that program of existing research. And so, yeah, I think it does, does take, um, it did, it did take for me some, some courage to, to do that. And it's also, I have to say a harder way to do research because you, you are not motivated by, you know, testing the next hypothesis in your own or somebody else's research program. Instead, you're often starting from a very different place, but that you then have to connect to existing research in some meaningful way so that it all, so that your work also makes a theoretical advance. Otherwise you're just doing sort of, you know, armchair psychology, I think, without really making theoretical contributions. So I think doing that kind of everyday observation plus theoretical development is is harder and it took a while for me to to get on board with being able to do that and i and i'll say that most i don't think most of my work does that um perfectly it's it's a hard thing to get right yeah i think that's a really interesting trade-off in psychology and i'm kind of interested in how uh you know if there's any sort of like broad statements that one can make about how it makes sense to do that, right? Because you could imagine kind of that one way to go about merging naturalistic and uh, you know very clear-cut experimental research is to start off with the naturalistic because you get uh, that sense of, well, here's actual humans doing actual things, and then we're going to go into the lab and we're really going to dial in what precisely we're seeing and quantify you know all the little nuanced aspects of it. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you think that there are trade-offs um, from going to sort of naturalistic and then dialing it in the lab versus more what you did, which was like, let's get right on the theoretical constructs and then let's go, you know, sort of look out into the world and see uh, what sort of stuff that explains. Um, I guess maybe the contrast isn't quite right between naturalistic and laboratory experiment. The lab, a, a, a really brilliant lab experiment, um, is one that captures all the powerful features of everyday experience. So I, I think it's often a false dichotomy between the field and the lab, as if the lab is existing in some other uh, dimension. I think the important insight that I got from Tom, that I try to keep top of mind all the time when we're doing research, is that there needs to be a real phenomena in everyday life that people care about that you're trying to explain, at least as a social psychologist. That's, that's I think, what defines our work at its best when we're doing research that connects with a real everyday experience that people have routinely and commonly that provides an insight that we wouldn't get get otherwise. We can do all of our research carefully in the lab on those kinds of contexts, but um, at some point you need to be able to talk to your neighbor and within a couple of sentences explain to them why they should care about what you do and having research that starts from a phenomena that they already care about is a powerful way to do that. Interesting. So uh, I want to go back a little bit further even, and I know you went to St. Olaf's for undergraduate, which is uh, you know, perhaps a quintessentially liberal arts school, as opposed to, say, an R1 research institution. 
Do you feel like you got a true liberal arts education and uh, maybe that influenced your thinking as your scholarly career developed? Uh, I definitely did. I was a psychology philosophy double major. Um, I was also surrounded by, um, by the humanities in a way that I think I might not have been if I was at an R1 institution. The, the, the most amazing class I actually took as an undergraduate was an independent study with the religion professor, Ed Centuri, focused on trying to understand why good people do bad things. And we did not really take an empirical approach. We read Dostoevsky and Alistair McIntyre. And, and uh, I mean, we were mostly reading philosophers and, and uh, humanistic writers, Richard Rorty, for instance. Um, and I think that, that having background in the humanities just because of the training you get if you're taught in liberal arts, having that background connected me with, with really big ideas that ultimately I was sort of frustrated, didn't have a method in philosophy or the humanities more broadly for testing, which was why psychology was so appealing to me. We could take these big questions, why do good people do bad things, and test it empirically, for instance. And so, yes, I do feel like that liberal arts education was really, really a good one. Um, and I, I, I appreciated it very much. I also got a lot of attention from faculty professors when I was, when I was in college. And I think you can get that in an R1 uh, institution as well. But, you know, I am not as connected now as a professor at the University of Chicago to the undergraduates who are doing research with me as my professors were to me when I was an undergraduate. And I think those connections and that attention is sometimes um, a, little, a little easier uh, to establish at a liberal arts place like St. Olaf. I'm proud to say that my son, my oldest son, is now a freshman at St. Olaf as well. Uh, so happy to have him following in those footsteps. That's really cool. And uh, so what what was the sort of moment where you decided that you wanted to transition in that sort of broad interest in questions like why do good people do bad things and actually turn that into a research career? Did you, uh, did you sort of know that that was, that was how you wanted to pursue that? Um, boy, those, uh, I don't know that there was ever an aha moment. I mean, your career unfolds with a lot of little steps that if things sort of work out, they work out in a particular way and you end up where you are. So it was never, never a, a single moment. I found myself as an undergraduate taking philosophy and psychology classes, but being drawn to testing sort of big, bigger questions um, in a laboratory setting. So for instance, my undergraduate honors thesis looked at how people felt about, about lying, essentially in the laboratory. That is, what was it wrong to lie to participants in an experiment? Was it wrong to use deception in an experiment? That question was one that many our IRB groups sort of wrestle with philosophically, and they presume that there are psychological consequences of being lied to in an experiment, but uh, there had actually been very little research on how people actually feel about being lied to in, in an experiment. Being deceived, do they feel bad? Do they feel negative? Um, uh, are they more suspicious afterwards? Um, and those are questions that you can't you can't just pontificate on like, uh, like I thought people often, often do. And instead we went to an experiment. And so we lied to people in an experiment. Uh, we gave them false feedback about their performance on a test. 
And we then informed some people that we had lied to them and did not inform other people that we had, had lied to them. It turned out that um, the only thing that affected people's feelings afterwards, how positive or negative they felt, was whether they got positive or negative performance feedback. Um, whether they'd been lied to didn't really matter to them. Uh, and so, so I thought that, I just, I found that whole process of doing experimental work like that, translating these sort of philosophical questions into testable psychological ones to be really interesting. My advisor as an undergrad, Chuck Huff, uh, was, is his name. He's still at St. Olaf. Um, he suggested, well, hey, you know, you can, you can continue doing this in graduate school if you'd like. My father was actually a psychology professor for a few years when I was little. My grandfather was a philosophy professor on my mom's side. And so I had academia in, in my background a bit in, in my, my family's history. And so I knew that was a path that was possible. So I applied to graduate programs. One day, Chuck handed me a book and said, hey, I, I think you might want to read this. I think you might find it interesting. And it was Tom Gilovich's book, How We Know It Isn't So. And I read that and I thought, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. And so I applied to lots of different graduate programs, including to Cornell. Uh, I was waitlisted at Cornell. I did not get in um, there. There were tons of other programs I applied to as well that I did not get into, too. Ultimately, um, I got lucky at Cornell. We were somebody else ahead of me. I think two people actually turned down their offers, which got me off the wait list and got me into, in, into the admit category. And then we were deciding between Cornell and Minnesota and we decided to go to Cornell and research worked out and we applied for jobs and I got lucky to be hired, um, at a job and that's how it unfolded. There was no point where I decided I, I want to make this my career. There were little steps along the way that just ultimately worked out in a fortunate way. Yeah, so it seems like, uh, so the making that connection with Tom, and obviously through your undergraduate advisors and that sort of stuff seems really important. And then there's that moment where, you know, you kind of needed those couple people to drop out so you could have that opportunity. That seems like one of those kind of moments of uh, incredible randomness that things, you know, sort of work out onto the path that you found yourself. Are there other things like that that, that happened where it's like, in retrospect, wow, you know, like that was, uh, you know, such a crazy thing that it happened like that, but it, it, it all put you on the track that you're on? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think, so one of the things that Tom, Tom always did in his, in his intro social psych class was he had people, I haven't done this myself, but I saw him do it several times. He had people write stories about their lives. Um, one at one story being one where you're, where you are actively making choices all the way and, and producing the outcomes in your life from your choices. The other focuses on the ways in which other people and sort of lucky breaks and fate sort of intervened in your life and, and produce some outcome and, and both provide somewhat compelling stories. But I think we can all look back on our lives and see places where the context was just right. And we, you know, if not for this, this particular break would have ended up somewhere else. We probably would have turned out okay in some other place as well. We'd have a different outcome. Um, but yeah, there were, there were lots like these. So, um, Chuck handing me that book when I was an undergraduate was a big one. The being lucky to get off the wait list um, was another one. I started doing research when I was in graduate school with Dave Dunning, who was also a, another advisor of mine, who was a really wonderful mentor. Um, he just happened to have an idea that really clicked with something that I was quite interested in, um, having to do with self-righteousness. Why, again, why do good people end up doing bad things, those first experiments um, happen to work out and they don't always. I've been, I've, you know, been on many projects with many students since where I think we're de work, working with a good idea, but it just turns out either not to be right or the experiments we conducted um, 
didn't provide as good a test of the hypothesis as we might have hoped. I got fortunate with those early results turning turning out uh, well in a way that you know produced something interesting that we could write about. Very first project with Tom, he was working with Ken Savitsky, a very good became a very good friend of mine, still is a very good friend of mine. They brought me onto that project, which focused really on social cognition, how we think about the minds of others. Again, those experiments just happened to work out well. And then when I was applying for for jobs, I was fortunate enough that, that Harvard University had a position available. And Dan Gilbert liked my research enough to argue against some of his colleagues that I ought to have a job there. And, you know, yeah, yeah there are just lots of dominoes that, that turned out well that... Uh, that made things successful in the long run for me. All right. Um, can you maybe do the other version of the essay then, where there are particular things that, you know, decisions you maybe made that you think uh, really uh, were game changers in terms of your ability to perform yeah, and sure. uh, do well? So um, I understand this is pretty rare phenomena these days, but... Um, when I was 17 years old, I, I, I met my wife, Jen, and uh, I was a freshman in college. And it was, I, was, I was in college a couple weeks before classes started because I also played football in college. So we were there for practice. And I met, I met Jen at an, um, just in it, we were randomly paired together with an advisor. So there's a bit of good fortune for you. Um, but I met her at this advisor picnic and um, we started dating in the spring of that year. And I remember in my junior year being convinced that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And I was worried that if I did not propose to her in that spring of my junior year, that she might have second thoughts and <laughs> might decide to do something else and I might lose her. So. Um, instead of waiting and sort of delaying that big move, I proposed to Jen, uh, in the, just before we left for summer of my junior year. And she said yes to that. And of all of the active decisions I've made, that one has been by far the best. And no matter whatever other decisions I make, that will be the best decision I've ever made in my life is to propose to her, um, you know, being married and having, you know, Jen's an amazing person, having that companion and that source of constant support and strength through graduate school, through, you know, really difficult assistant professor years, through the challenges of uh, moving here to the University of Chicago and the, the difficulties that brought, She's been just a, a real stable source of support for me that, you know, has, has maintained my mental health and well-being and, and motivation, um, you know, ever since we, we got married. So that, that is, that's the decision I made asking her to marry me that, uh, that was the big one. Um, as for other decisions, you know, I, you know, sort of less momentous in the, in the career, you know, your, your ideas do come from lots of places, but part of them are from, from your own head. And I think being willing to pay attention to Tom's advice in graduate school, to pay attention to the world and to constantly be looking there for ideas, paying close attention to um, just the practice of our craft so I also very deliberately when I was in graduate school watched how uh, really successful faculty members just sort of conducted themselves. Tom always carved out time to write, which I learned to be critically important. Tom also was a very good presenter and public speaker, and I was terrible. I was nervous and anxious and, uh, and tongue-tied and not particularly articulate. But I spent a lot of time in graduate school watching how people, good speakers, spoke. 
And I actively and deliberately tried to mimic that in my own style, my own form and so on, what I could, what I could do as a speaker. And that I think made an awful lot of difference. As academics, we're only as good as we can write and speak about our ideas. We might have brilliant ideas, but if we can't tell other people about them in ways that get them excited, either in our writing or in our speaking, we're not going to be that successful. And I made a deliberate, very deliberate choice to try to be a good speaker by watching Tom do it. So I want to go back and uh, talk about Jen a little bit. Can I can I ask what the what was the proposal that you gave to her? Your brilliant uh, junior, <laughs> really, junior in college. Yeah, what did what did that play out like? Yeah, so um, so I'm an outdoors person. So when I'm not when I'm not uh, raising my kids, well, I do this with my kids, but when I'm not doing doing this kind of research, I'm out out in the woods. Um, you know, connecting with nature in one, one way or another. And uh, so this was the springtime in Northfield, Minnesota. There was a state park not too far from St. Olaf's campus. And one of my favorite flowers, uh, wildflowers in the woods in the springtime is, is called a jack in the pulpit. I'm not sure if you have them in the UK or not, but it's, it's a little pitcher plant. As a kind of a little pitcher with a stem inside, a pestle inside, and then a, a, a hood over the top. And my plan was to go out to the state park in the morning and hide my engagement ring in a jack-in-the-pulpit that would happen to be flowering at the time. I would then go out. I would get down on one knee to look at this beautiful flower. I would show Jen this flower. I would open it up and bam, there would be the ring inside the Jack in the pulpit plant. That was my idea. Um, that turned out not to be quite how it unfolded. Uh, when I went out to the state park that morning, there were no Jack in the pulpits flowering. And so instead I hid my ring around some violets. And yes, I then left them, my wedding ring or my engagement ring in the woods. I drove back to campus to pick up Jen. We came out for our hike. I was still gonna do the same thing, but I didn't have this picture plant in it. Uh, we were walking along the trail. Jen later claims that she could tell something was up because I was acting weird. I thought I was doing a pretty good job concealing it, but. Anyway, we get up to this spot. I kneel down to look at these flowers. I call her over to look at the flowers. She knows something up and is up and she's a little, she stays a little ways away. I pull the ring out and I ask her to marry me. I'm down on one knee and I will never forget this. Um, you know, you imagine you propose to your, your eventual wife and the, the response is, is gotta be like, you know, something right out of Hollywood. Uh, you're, you're, future spouse is so excited. Yes, yes. You know, in all ways, yes, they respond. But that wasn't what Jen did. Um, Jen turned around and she ran the other way down the trail for about 20 or so yards, which was not really the response I was, I was anticipating. Uh, <laughs> she, she stopped and and turn around and came back and she said that, you know, I wasn't expecting this now. I was expecting this maybe would come next year. I was going to think about it, uh, take some time to think about it. So she was just caught off guard and uh, she came back and she said yes. And so, so that was how, uh, that was how it unfolded. We then got married uh, after we graduated in the summer um, after our senior year. So that was how it unfolded. Oh my God, that's amazing! I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, uh, so let's see. And then, so you have uh, sorry, how many kids did you say you have? We have five. You yeah. have five kids. And so, yeah. when did that start happening? Was that as a grad student or a postdoc? So my last year in graduate school, my fifth year in graduate school, was when Ben, uh, our oldest son, was born, March twenty first of that last year of graduate school. I'd already, I already had a, had a job by then. Uh, I'd accepted a job by then. Um, but that's, that's when he came along was our first. Yep. 
So we'd been married yeah, so for, how, for five years at that time. Okay. And how did that play out for you? Was that, was that something that um, was, was very difficult to do at that stage of your career? Uh, was that about the time when other of your colleagues were having kids? What, what sort of, what effect did that have? So um, in graduate school, we had sort of an unusual graduate cohort. A lot of my peers at the time were married. Uh, in particular, very good friends of mine, Ken Savitsky and Leif Van Boven, were both married. Leif uh, is at the University of Colorado. Ken is at Williams College. And Leif had actually already had, um, had a son in graduate school. And so, you know, we were just around folks who felt sort of older. And we'd been married, you know, five years. We felt it was about time. And it's never particularly easy to have children um but it you know we weren't we weren't we we weren't convinced that there was a perfect time and you know for my career it was always going to be sort of difficult and that we would just we would make do we would manage jen also um was was home full time with with our son and so that made it a lot more manageable for me i understand not not everybody has that um has that ability to do, and and it's certainly, uh, no matter how hard you try, it can be a little easier for for men, for fathers, than for mothers to have children. Um, but Jen was full time, was home full time with with Ben, and and that allowed me to, you know, to spend the time I needed to at work. I missed a lot of things when he was little, which you know, which wasn't wasn't fun. Um, but uh, you know, we we got along, we got along. I think if I had, I think if I, you know, there, there was some, there's something about coming home after a long day of work where, you know, you're dealing with students who who can be challenging, or you know, you get a, a tough manuscript review that that uh, gets you to feel like you're the biggest idiot in the world who's never going to be able to do good research and you got all these insecurities as a young academic and, and coming home to a son who needs your, you know, to a child who needs your attention is just, is a, is a powerful reality check, um, for what, for what matters. And I, I think that helped me a lot maintain sort of balance that, you know, even if things didn't work out in my academic life, I was a father and a husband and those ultimately, in, in one's life are the most, most important things. And, and, uh, so I never got too wrapped up, I would say in the, you know, positive and negative moments of, of my work. And I think have, you know, starting a family, having a real life helped, helped with that. Well, uh, thanks for touching and sharing on, on, on all that, uh, Nick, it's really interesting to hear. And, uh, I want to change gears a little bit. And uh, I know you've held appointments in both psych departments as well as business schools. And so uh, I guess I'm curious what, maybe how did, how did, um, how does working in a business school, how did that uh, work out differently than you thought it would? So I had, when I came out of graduate school, I had an offer from the University of Chicago's business school as well as Harvard psychology department. And in my mind, those are the two best jobs and in the whole world, at least they were at the time. And, um, and I was nervous about going to a business school because I'm not a, a businessy person. I'm a psychologist. Uh, the University of Chicago's business school at the time was one of the few places where it was pretty clear you could go and be a straight psychologist um, without having to do businessy sorts of things. But still, I was nervous about it. And, you know, I, I loved the psych department at, at Harvard too. I love my colleagues there. And so, so decided to go, go there instead. So I, I'd had this tension in my mind from, from the very, very start. Um, we then, uh, you know, Harvard wasn't tenuring folks at the time and a family was back in the Midwest. And so a few years into my stint at, at Harvard, we got interested in thinking about getting closer to family and, and, and a, a job here at, at uh, the University of Chicago worked out and it, it has turned out to be 
an amazing job for me, the, the best in the world. And I, I was nervous about going to business school because you're surrounded by different colleagues. You're surrounded mostly by economists, uh, whereas in a psych department, you're surrounded by other psychologists and, and particularly folks who are studying lower level mechanisms. So you've got, you know, the, the neuro people around and you've got the low level cog, cognitive psychology folks around. You don't have that in a business school. Instead, I have economists. Um, the other big difference between being in a business school and being in a psych department is that I teach MBA students rather than undergrads. And, and you know, everybody has their stereotypes about MBA students, and most of them are not positive. But my experience of both of those things, both having economists as colleagues and MBA students as students, has proved to be much more rewarding and positive than I would have anticipated. So first, speaking to economists, um, I've found their perspective to be really valuable as a psychologist for two reasons. One is they are better than most psychologists, I would, I think, in thinking about concepts of, concepts of equilibria. So, you know, you push on one lever and it moves some other lever out there in the world. As psychologists, we tend to focus narrowly on whatever variable we happen to be manipulating without thinking about how pushing on that lever out in the world might affect other things that we're doing. And just being attentive to that kind of complexity in real life, I think, makes our work a little richer. Um, economists also care about effect sizes out in the real world. And I, I think that's just really important to pay attention to as well, that you can float in psychology journals lots of clever sophisticated experimental tests demonstrating effects that are, are are unlikely to ever ever be really big and important in the world economists care a lot about what matters in competing compete among competing effects and i th i just think that's an important thing for us to pay attention to as well how big how important is the thing we are studying compared to other things we could be studying Having economists around, I think, has helped keep me sort of honest about that. Uh, and then as for the MBA students, what I've learned is, is that mostly students are students. And whether they're undergrads or MBAs or PhDs, if you get a group of folks in a room who are excited to learn, you're going to have a blast as a teacher. It's going to be great. And the MBA students we have here at the University of Chicago are some of the best in the world. They are bright and eager and engaged and excited. They ask challenging questions. They push back in class on things if they're not sure about them. Um, and they also have interests that make teaching psychology really fun. They are going to take our work and what we do and go out and try to use it tomorrow. And that's different from teaching undergrads in a way that I've appreciated. It's also allowed me to teach a very different kind of class than one I could teach to undergraduates. I now teach uh, essentially an ethics and happiness class to my MBAs called Designing a Good Life. And it is a class focused on how you would create environments, particularly organizations, that help people be better than they would otherwise be. That is, do more good, help them help them be more good than they would otherwise be, be more ethical. But also um, be happier too. It turns out being ethical is aligned with being happy. And uh, it's just a really interesting cl class that I can teach mostly because I'm teaching the MBAs. And I, I wouldn't have guessed that when I moved here in 2005, both the value that I would get from having economists around and also how much I would enjoy teaching MBA students. Uh, so there's a couple things that I want to touch on in there. One is that you mentioned that at the time when you were looking for jobs, uh, Chicago Booth School was sort of uh, a, the right place to go to be a psychologist. And I'm wondering if that has changed a little bit in that there is you know sort of more acceptance of being psychologist a psychologist at a business school now or has that more or less stayed the same uh what's your take on on how that is is changing in business schools across the u.s 
Oh, so that's changed a lot. And it's not just in the U.S., it's around, it's around the world. So this was almost 20 years ago now that I, I was coming out of graduate school. And at the time, um, psycho- business schools were just starting to become more rigorous in their research, um, focused on management and human resources, which is where psychology interfaces with the business world. And they they were starting to want more data-driven, empirically-oriented work coming out of those groups. Um, the University of Chicago had a long tradition of hiring psychologists. So Hillel Einhorn and Robin Hogarth were decision-making researchers, both psychologists that had been at the University of Chicago, then the GSB, the Graduate School of Business, um, and it started the Center for Decision Research that was was bringing in JDM, judgment decision-making oriented researchers. But there were not many other business schools who were following in our mold. There were a few, Stanford, Yale being two. But since 2001, that's changed a lot. Now, and, and, and there are two things have happened. One is that business schools, at least in the disciplines that touch on psychology, have become more open to rigorous experimental research. And so there are now lots of business school programs, business schools, where they recognize the value of basic psychological research. They recognize the importance of publishing in basic psychology journals and make a great home for folks who do the kind of work that we do. The other thing that has happened is that um, so business schools have become sort of more rigorous, at least as it touches with psychology, but psych departments have also become more micro-oriented, I would say. So psychology departments have um, shifted their interest away from hiring behaviorally-oriented researchers and focusing and focus more on neuroscience. Um, so business schools have picked up behavior and I would say psych departments have lost behavior. Um, you know, so now I think if I were thinking about going to other psych departments, there would not, not be as many, um, opportunities for someone who's, who who doesn't do neuroscience work as there would have been in 2001, but there are more opportunities in business schools. That's really interesting. Um, so one other thing I'm curious about in this area is where did you get the idea for the designing a good life course, right? Because it's it's neither like let's say the central thesis of your research, nor is it a standard, you know, like title from the catalog of, of psychology department. So how did you come up with with that as the thing that you wanted to teach to the MEA students? So I've always been, so it's, it's, it's more connected to my research than you might guess, but um, I've always been interested in why good people do bad things. So um, my, very first, my very first project in graduate school was focused on people's views of themselves and their own ethical character and their views of other people and others' ethical character. People tend to think that they are more ethical than others are. Actually, more recent research that we've done finds the the, the real nature of self-righteousness is not that I think I'm more ethical than you, but rather that I'm less unethical than you. It's not that so much that I'm holier than thou. It's just that I'm, I'm not as evil or prone to evil as you might be. But my very first um, project in graduate school that I did with Dave Dunning uh, focused on which of those two views is more accurate, people's views of themselves or their views of other people. And we found that people's views of themselves were positively biased. In fact, we were we were more prone to behaving unethically than we would have guessed. But our predictions about other people were more calibrated. And so it seemed that we, to me, that that people really systematically misunderstood the nature of their own and others' ethical behavior. People tended to think their own behavior was more guided by their good intentions than they actually were. And and I think that's the general way that people think about 
ethics and 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 moral behavior is that it's it's a character driven sort of phenomena and social psychology has just documented time and time again the ways in which that's just overly simplistic that we misunderstand the power of context to affect our behavior and that kind of misunderstanding is central to my research where people's beliefs about themselves or others are just miscalibrated um at the same time my colleague uh, Richard Thaler um, wrote this book, Nudge, which is the, the best um, description of social psychology's main point that I know of. Uh, he did a better job articulating why social psychology matters than any social psychologist did, pointing out that, you know, you can change the environment, providing little nudges to people that'll shift their behavior. Um, and so that kind of design-oriented thinking was, was on the top of, top of our minds, um, and it created a way of talking about the research that we did that I think was appealing to the MBAs. And then also over the last couple of decades and also in, in my research, um, it's become very clear that ethics and hedonics are sometimes, are, are often aligned. That is that doing good tends to feel good, and not just feel good, it tends to feel surprisingly good. That is, people underestimate, seem to underestimate how positive they'll feel when they reach out and connect to others in, in positive ways. Ethical behavior is inherently treating other people well. And when you do that, it turns out to feel better than you expect. We were documenting that in my research. And so I'd been teaching this class called Managing in Organizations for about a decade. I taught it so many times I could teach it in my sleep. I still could, I think. Um, it was time for me to teach another class, the dean's office at Booth was encouraging faculty to think about curriculum innovation. I thought I had a way of thinking about ethics um, that I could teach to the MBAs that would be very practical. How do you treat ethics as a design problem so that as a leader or manager you can uh, design an organization that helps people be better? Um, and a side benefit of creating a more ethical organization is that you'll also make people feel good they'll feel happier working at that organization. And so I, all of that together made me think I had an interesting way to teach ethics that people hadn't done in business schools before, or really anywhere before, focused on living a good life, a good life in three senses of the term, the good being successful in an organization, good meaning being ethical, and also good in terms of feeling good. And so that was that was all of that context was the genesis for the for the idea of this class. So we're uh, kind of bumping up against the uh, time here, but there's one other thing that I'd kind of like to get your take on, and uh, it comes back to one of your most famous papers, which is essentially showing how we use our own perspective. As a jumping off point, think about the perspective of others. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, implications here is that we're going to be more accurate thinking about people who are similar to ourselves than people who are different. And so uh, I'm wondering, do you think that that gap has maybe become wider in society since you published that paper? You know, for example, we have greater political polarization uh, with the Internet and everything. We come into contact with more people who hold different views and sometimes dramatically so. So what's, what's your state of the union uh, on, on making sense of others right now? So, yeah, I think in some ways misunderstanding has become more ramp, rampant in part because the only way to really understand the mind of another person um, is to get their perspective directly. As I know what it's like to be you, Cody, by asking you, how do you feel today? Tell me what you're doing right now. Tell me your views on immigration. Uh, how do you feel about affirmative action? Whatever it may be. Um, I learn what it's like to be you, not by trying to imagine what you're like or guessing what you're like when you're different from me. I understand what it's like to be you when you tell me what it's like to be you, or I get direct feedback about what it's likely like to be you. I'm actually in the very same situation that you are, say. Um, and I think there's a lot less of that opportunity to get perspective directly from other people. Now, um, a lot of social interaction is filtered through social media, which 
if you are trying to design a system that created interpersonal misunderstanding, you'd be hard pressed to come up with a better system than Twitter or email for misunderstanding, <laughs> right? Yeah. So let's strip the voice out of it, which makes you, we find in our research, seem less thoughtful and intelligent, less human-like. Let's strip away your ability to write lots of detailed content. Let's strip it down to 140 characters. And then let's make it all anonymous so that you never actually um, are, are, are dealing with anybody in an identifiable way. Um, and all of that, all of that fosters misunderstanding. It doesn't enable understanding. And so, yeah, I think it's very hard to make comparisons over time, uh, empirically speaking. But um, I, yeah, I think the the way communication has evolved with increasing efficiency from technology over the last couple of decades has not come with a corresponding increase in accuracy for interpersonal understanding. If anything. It's likely impaired our ability to understand other people. Well, uh, Nick, this has been fantastically interesting, and uh, I would love to pick your brain more about designing a good life and understanding others and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I really appreciate the time uh, today, and and uh, this has been really fun for me. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you for asking me to do it. Keep up the good work. That was my conversation with Nick Epley. I hope that you enjoyed it and got something out of it. I found him to be tremendously fascinating. And I think there are a couple things uh, that stood out to me above all else. The second and perhaps slightly less important one is that when you look at his experience um, in choosing between psychology departments and business schools, uh, clearly the business school track has worked out quite well for him. And I think to me the takeaway point about this is that um, when you do something like, for example, get a psychology PhD, you can become overly narrowed in your um, understanding of what the different trajectories that you can take are, right? So you think, okay, I'm going to go get this degree, and then I'm going to follow this straightforward path into a career in a psychology department. And the space of possible futures is often so much greater than we can imagine, and we constrain ourselves unnecessarily. And um, so in Nick's case, going into a business school uh, turned out to be a very good use of his particular skill sets in psychology. And I think for, for each of us, no matter what our background is, um, we often think about the possibilities of what we're going to do with that background expertise as uh, sort of this straightforward, clear path uh, along a well-defined trajectory. And opening up, uh, you know, to the space of, of, of other possibilities, you know, in, in, in psychology, perhaps business school, government work, sort of like what you're talking about with nudges, um, in, in, in uh, industry, whatever it is, opening up to uh, beyond just that uh, initial inclination to say, I'm going to take the straightforward path, can often be a very useful uh, an instructive way to conceptualize one's future and think about the path that one is on. And I think that uh, Nick's uh, you know, sort of trajectory is a very good example of that and something we can all perhaps meditate on a little bit more. And so the second thing, which I think is, is of tremendous importance, is uh, the role that family stability and personal stability played in Nick's professional success. And so I think for a lot of us, certainly for me um, personally, there's this sense that, you know, if I overcommit, if I commit to these big things, whether it's a family or a child or, or, or you know, whatever major life decision, irrevocable life decision it is, um, that that is going to encumber me uh, in, in this way that's going to take away from you know, my ability to, you know, attain professional success or, or personal freedom or whatever, whatever it is, right? Um, but if you look at uh, Nick's experience, clearly having that personal stability opened up his mind to a wider um, and more realistic world about what mattered. S surely he had to 
you know, make sacrifices in terms of his personal life. And I'm sure he didn't get home for dinner quite the time that he wanted to every single day. But um, ultimately, having a family and having kids grounded him in a sense of what was important. And so when things were going poorly uh, at work, uh, he had this much larger scope of meaning uh, in his life that he could um, sort of uh, have a little bit of recourse to. And I think that that's such an inspiring thing to see and something to, you know, perhaps temper that inclination to say, oh, I'm going to uh, go it alone because that's going to give me the most flexibility. Sometimes the uh, optimal thing to do from every perspective, from, from happiness and, and meaning to professional success is to have that um, broader scope of understanding about what's important in life and and committing to those things that really, really do truly matter. Um, and I think Nick uh, just has a beautiful example of that in his own story, plus his uh, story about the proposal is just <laughs> so great. So uh, I really enjoyed that and um, I hope that uh, you did as well. And uh, you know, if, if, if you like the show, I, I'd appreciate it if you subscribe or follow. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or uh, on my weekly newsletter on my website, CodyCommerce.com. So thank you very much for listening today, and I will see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.